there is something wrong about the man whose wife and children do not greet him affectionately on his homecoming. When you do not know what to do or which way to turn, smile. This will relax your mind and let the sunshine of happiness into your soul. The Law of Success Lesson 5 Initiative and Leadership You can do it if you believe you can. Before you proceed to the mastery of this lesson your attention is directed to the fact that there is perfect coordination of thought running throughout this course. You will observe that the entire 16 lessons harmonize and blend with each other so that they constitute a perfect chain that has been built, link by link, out of the factors that enter into the development of power through organized effort. You will observe, also, that the same fundamental principles of applied psychology form the foundation of each of these 16 lessons, although different application is made of these principles in each of the lessons. This lesson, on initiative and leadership, follows the lesson on self-confidence for the reason that no one could become an efficient leader or take the initiative in any great undertaking without belief in himself. Initiative and leadership are associated terms in this lesson for the reason that leadership is essential for the attainment of success, and initiative is the very foundation upon which this necessary quality of leadership is built. Initiative is as essential to success as a hub is essential to a wagon wheel. And what is initiative? It is that exceedingly rare quality that prompts, nay, impels, a person to do that which ought to be done without being told to do it. Albert Hubbard expressed himself on the subject of initiative in the words. The world bestows its big prizes, both in money and honors, for one thing, and that is initiative. What is initiative? I'll tell you, it is doing the right thing without being told. But next to doing the right thing without being told is to do it when you are told once. That is say, carry the message to Garcia. Those who can carry a message get high honors, but their pay is not always in proportion. Next, there are those who do the right thing when necessity kicks them from behind, and these get indifference instead of honors, and a pittance for pay. This kind spend most of the time polishing a bench with a hard luck story. Then, still lower down in the scale than this we have the fellow who will not do the right thing even when someone goes along to show him how and stays to see that he does it, he is always out of a job, or receives the contempt he deserves, unless he has a rich pot in which case destiny patiently waits around T116 comer with a stuffed club. To which class do you belong? Inasmuch as you will be expected to take inventory of yourself and determine which of the 15 factors of this course you need most, after you have completed the 16th lesson, it may be well if you begin to get ready for this analysis by answering the question that Albert Hubbard has asked. To which class do you belong? One of the peculiarities of leadership is the fact that it is never found in those who have not acquired the habit of taking the initiative. Leadership is something that you must invite yourself into, it will never thrust itself upon you. If you will carefully analyze all leaders whom you know you will see that they not only exercised initiative, but they went about their work with a definite purpose in mind. You will also see that they possess that quality described in the third lesson of this course, self-confidence. These facts are mentioned in this lesson for the reason that it will profit you to observe that successful people make use of all the factors covered by the 16 lessons of the course, and, for the more important reason that it will profit you to understand thoroughly the principle of organized effort which this reading course is intended to establish in your mind. This seems an appropriate place to state that this course is not intended as a shortcut to success, nor is it intended as a mechanical formula that you may use in noteworthy achievement without effort on your part. The real value of the course lies in the use that you will make of it, and not in the course itself. The chief purpose of the course is to help you develop in yourself the 15 qualities covered by the 16. Lessons of the course, and one of the most important of these qualities is initiative, the subject of this lesson. We will now proceed to apply the principle upon which this lesson is founded by describing, in detail, 
just how it served successfully to complete a business transaction which most people would call difficult. In 1916 I needed $25,000 with which to create an educational institution, but I had neither this some nor sufficient collateral with which to borrow it through the usual banking sources. Did I bemoan my fate or think of what I might accomplish if some rich relative or good Samaritan would come to my rescue by loaning me the necessary capital? I did nothing of the sort. I did just what you will be advised, throughout this course, to do. First of all, I made the securing of this capital my definite chief aim. Second, I laid out a complete plan through which to transform this aim into reality. Backed by sufficient self-confidence and spurred on by initiative, I proceeded to put my plan into action. But, before the action stage of the plan had been reached, more than six weeks of constant, persistent study and effort and thought were embodied in it. If a plan is to be sound it must be built of carefully chosen material. You will here observe the application of the principle of organized effort, through the operation of which it is possible for one to ally or associate several interests in such a way that each of these interests is greatly strengthened and each supports all the others, just as one link in a chain supports all the other links. I wanted this $25,000 in capital for the pure. Pose of creating a school of advertising and salesmanship. Two things were necessary for the organization of such a school. One was the $25,000 capital, which I did not have, and the other was the proper course of instruction, which I did have. My problem was to ally myself with some group of men who needed that which I had, and who would supply the $25,000. This alliance had to be made through a plan that would benefit all concerned. After my plan had been completed, and I was satisfied that it was equitable and sound, I laid it before the owner of a well-known and reputable business college which just then was finding competition quite keen and was badly in need of a plan for meeting this competition. My plan was presented in about these words. Whereas, you have one of the most reputable business colleges in the city, and Whereas, you need some plan with which to meet the stiff competition in your field, and Whereas, your good reputation has provided you with all the credit you need, and Whereas, I have the plan that will help you meet this competition successfully. Be it resolved, that we ally ourselves through a plan that will give you that which you need and at the same time supply me with something which I need. Then I proceeded to unfold my plan, further, in these words. I have written a very practical course on advertising and salesmanship. Having built this course out of my actual experience in training and directing salesmen and my experience in planning and the space you occupy and the authority you exercise may be measured with mathematical exactness by the service you render. Directing many successful advertising campaigns, I have back of it plenty of evidence of its soundness. If you will use your credit in helping market this course I will place it in your business college, as one of the regular departments of your curriculum and take entire charge of this newly created department. No other business college in the city will be able to meet your competition, for the reason that no other college has such a course as this. The advertising that you do in marketing this course will serve, also, to stimulate the demand for your regular business course. You may charge the entire amount that you spend for this advertising, to my department, and the advertising bill will be paid out of that department, leaving you the accumulative advantage that will accrue to your other departments without cost to you. Now, I suppose you will want to know where I profit by this transaction, and I will tell you. I want you to enter into a contract with me in which it will be agreed that when the cash receipts from my department equal the amount that you have paid out or contracted to pay out for advertising, my department and my course in advertising and salesmanship become my own and I may have the privilege of separating this department from your school and running it under my own name. The plan was agreeable and the contract was closed. Please keep in mind that my definite purpose was to secure the use of $25,000 for which I had no security to offer. 
In a little less than a year the business college had paid out slightly more than $25,000 for advertising and marketing my course and the other X. Ponce incidental to the operation of this newly organized department, while the department had collected and, turned back to the college, in tuition fees, a sum equaling the amount the college had spent, and I took the department over, as a going and self-sustaining business, according to the terms of my contract. As a matter of fact this newly created department not only served to attract students for the other departments of the college, but at the same time the tuition fees collected through this new department were sufficient to place it on a self-sustaining basis before the end of the first year. Now you can see that while the college did not loan me one penny of actual capital, it nevertheless supplied me with credit which served exactly the same purpose. I said that my plan was founded upon equity, that it contemplated a benefit to all parties concerned. The benefit accruing to me was the use of the $25,000, which resulted in an established and self-sustaining business by the end of the first year. The benefit accruing to the college was the student secured cured for its regular commercial and business course as a result of the money spent in advertising my department, all advertising having been done under the name of the college. Today that business college is one of the most successful schools of its kind, and it stands as a monument of sound evidence with which to demonstrate the value of allied effort. This incident has been related, not alone because it shows the value of initiative and leadership, but for the reason that it leads up to the subject covered by. The next lesson of this reading course on the law of success, which is imagination. There are generally many plans through the operation of which a desired object may be achieved, and it often happens to be true that the obvious and usual methods employed are not the best. The usual method of procedure, in the case related, would have been that of borrowing from a bank. You can see that this method was impractical, in this case, for the reason that no collateral was available. A great philosopher once said, initiative is the passkey that opens the door to opportunity. I do not recall who this philosopher was, but I know that he was great because of the soundness of his statement. We will now proceed to outline the exact procedure that you must follow if you are to become a person of initiative and leadership. First, you must master the habit of procrastination and eliminate it from your makeup. This habit of putting off until tomorrow that which you should have done last week or last year or a score of years ago is gnawing at the very vitals of your being, and you can accomplish nothing until you throw it off. The method through which you eliminate procrastination is based upon a well-known and scientifically tested principle of psychology which has been referred to in the two preceding lessons of this course as autosuggestion. Copy the following formula and place it conspicuously in your room where you will see it as you retire at night and as you arise in the morning. Initiative and Leadership Having chosen a definite chief aim as my life work I now understand it to be my duty to transform this purpose into reality. Therefore, I will form the habit of taking some definite action each day that will carry me one step nearer the attainment of my definite chief aim. I know that procrastination is a deadly enemy of all who would become leaders in any undertaking, and I will eliminate this habit from my makeup by a. doing some one definite thing each day, that ought to be done, without anyone telling me to do it b. Looking around until I find at least one thing that I can do each day, that I have not been in the habit of doing, and that will be of value to others, without expectation of pay. c. Telling at least one other person, each day, of the value of practicing this habit of doing something that ought to be done without being told to do it. I can see that the muscles of the body become strong in proportion to the extent to which they are used, therefore I understand that the habit of initiative also becomes fixed in proportion to the extent that it is practiced. I realize that the place to begin developing the habit of initiative is in the small, commonplace things connected with my daily work, therefore I will go at my work each day as if I were doing it solely for the purpose of developing this necessary habit of initiative. 
I understand that by practicing this habit of taking the initiative in connection with my daily work I will be not only developing that habit, but I will also be attracting the attention of those who will place greater value on my services as a result of this practice. Signed. Regardless of what you are now doing, every day brings you face to face with a chance to render some service, outside of the course of your regular duties, that will be of value to others. In rendering this additional service, of your own accord, you of course understand that you are not doing so with the object of receiving monetary pay. You are rendering this service because it provides you with ways and means of exercising, developing and making stronger the aggressive spirit of initiative which you must possess before you can ever become an outstanding figure in the affairs of your chosen field of life work. Those who work for money alone, and who receive for their pay nothing but money, are always underpaid, no matter how much they receive. Money is necessary, but the big prizes of life cannot be measured in dollars and cents. No amount of money could possibly be made to take the place of the happiness and joy and pride that belong to the person who digs a better ditch, or builds a better chicken coop, or sweeps a cleaner floor, or cooks a better meal. Every normal person loves to create something that is better than the average. The joy of creating a work of art is a joy that cannot be replaced by money or any other form of material possession. I have in my employ a young lady who opens. WHAT helped you over the great obstacles of life? Was asked of a highly successful man. The other obstacles, he replied. Assorts and answers much of my personal mail. She began in my employ more than three years ago. Then her duties were to take dictation when she was asked to do so. Her salary was about the same as that which others receive for similar service. One day I dictated the following motto which I asked her to typewrite for me. Remember that your only limitation is the one that you set up in your own mind. As she handed the typewritten page back to me she said, your motto has given me an idea that is going to be of value to both you and me. I told her I was glad to have been of service to her. The incident made no particular impression on my mind, but from that day on I could see that it had made a tremendous impression on her mind. She began to come back to the office after supper and perform service that she was neither paid for nor expected to perform. Without anyone telling her to do it she began to bring to my desk letters that she had answered for me. She had studied my style and these letters were attended to as well as I could have done it, in some instances much better. She kept up this habit until my personal secretary resigned. When I began to look for someone to take his place, what was more natural than to turn to this young woman to fill the place? Before I had time to give her the position she took it on her initiative. My personal mail began to come to my desk with a new secretary's name attached, and she was that secretary. On her own time, after hours, without additional pay, she had prepared herself for the best position on my staff. But that is not all. This young lady became so noticeably efficient that she began to attract the attention of others who offered her attractive positions. I have increased her salary many times and she now receives a salary more than four times as large as the amount she received when she first went to work for me as an ordinary stenographer, and, to tell you the truth, I am helpless in the matter, because she has made herself so valuable to me that I cannot get along without her. That is initiative transformed into practical, understandable terms. I would be remiss in my duties if I failed to direct your attention to an advantage, other than a greatly increased salary, that this young lady's initiative has brought her. It has developed in her a spirit of cheerfulness that brings her happiness which most stenographers never know. Her work is not work it is a great interesting game at which she is playing. Even though she arrives at the office ahead of the regular stenographers and remains there long after they have watched the clock tick off 5 o'clock and quitting time, her hours are shorter by far than are those of the other workers. Hours of labor do not drag on the hands of those who are happy at their work. This brings us to the next step in our description of the exact procedure that you must follow in developing initiative and leadership. 
Second, you of course understand that the only way to get happiness is by giving it away, to others. The same applies to the development of initiative. You can best develop this essential quality in yourself by making it your business to interest those around you in doing the same. It is a well-known fact that a man learns best that which he endeavors to teach others. If a man embraces a certain creed or religious faith, the first thing he does is to go out and try to sell it to others. And in exact proportion to the extent to which he impresses others does he impress himself. In the field of salesmanship it is a well-known fact that no salesman is successful in selling others until he has first made a good job of selling himself. Stated conversely, no salesman can do his best to sell others without sooner or later selling himself that which he is trying to sell to others. Any statement that a person repeats over and over again for the purpose of inducing others to believe it, he, also, will come to believe, and this holds good whether the statement is false or true. You can now see the advantage of making it your business to talk initiative, think initiative, eat initiative, sleep initiative and practice initiative. By so doing you are becoming a person of initiative and leadership, for it is a well-known fact that people will readily, willingly and voluntarily follow the person who shows by his actions that he is a person of initiative. In the place where you work or the community in which you live you come in contact with other people. Make it your business to interest every one of them who will listen to you in the development of initiative. It will not be necessary for you to give your reasons for doing this, nor will it be necessary for you to announce the fact that you are doing it. Just go ahead and do it. In your own mind you will understand, of course, that you are doing it because. This practice will help you and will, at least, do those whom you influence in the same practice no harm. If you wish to try an experiment that will prove both interesting and profitable to you, pick out some person of your acquaintance whom you know to be a person who never does anything that he is not expected to do, and begin selling him your idea of initiative. Do not stop by merely discussing the subject once, keep it up every time you have a convenient opportunity. Approach the subject from a different angle each time. If you go at this experiment in a tactful and forceful manner you will soon observe a change in the person on whom you are trying the experiment. And, you will observe something else of more importance still, you will observe a change in yourself. Do not fail to try this experiment. You cannot talk initiative to others without developing a desire to practice it yourself. Through the operation of the principle of auto-suggestion every statement that you make to others leaves its imprint on your own subconscious mind, and this holds good whether your statements are false or true. You have often heard the saying, he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. Properly interpreted, this simply means that we are constantly attracting to ourselves and weaving into our own characters and personalities those qualities which our influence is helping to create in others. If we help others develop the habit of initiative, we, in turn, develop this same habit. If we sow the seeds of hatred and envy and discouragement in others, we, in turn, develop these qualities in ourselves. This principle through which a man comes to resemble in his own nature those whom he most admires is fully brought out in Hawthorne's story, The Great Stone Face, a story that every parent should have his offspring read. We come, now, to the next step in our description of the exact procedure that you must follow in developing initiative and leadership. Third, before we go further let it be understood what is meant by the term leadership, as it is used in connection with this reading course on the law of success. There are two brands of leadership, and one of them is as deadly and destructive as the other is helpful and constructive. The deadly brand, which leads not to success, but to absolute failure, is the brand adopted by pseudo-leaders who force their leadership on unwilling followers. It will not be necessary here to describe this brand or to point out the fields of endeavor in which it is practiced, with the exception of the field of war, and in this field we will mention but one notable example, that of Napoleon. Napoleon was a leader, there can be no doubt about this, but he led his followers and himself to destruction. 
the details are recorded in the history of France and the French people, where you may study them if you choose. It is not Napoleon's brand of leadership that is recommended in this course, although I will admit that Napoleon possessed all the necessary fundamentals for great leadership, excepting when he lacked the spirit of helpfulness to others as an objective. His desire for the power that comes through leadership was based solely upon self-aggrandizement. His desire for leadership was built upon personal ambition and not. Cherish your visions and your dreams as they are the children of your soul, the blueprints of your ultimate achievements. Upon the desire to lift the French people to a higher and nobler station in the affairs of nations. The brand of leadership that is recommended through this course of instruction is the brand which leads to self-determination and freedom and self-development and enlightenment and justice. This is the brand that endures. For example, and as a contrast with the brand of leadership through which Napoleon raised himself into prominence, consider our own American commoner, Lincoln. The object of his leadership was to bring truth and justice and understanding to the people of the United States. Even though he died a martyr to his belief in this brand of leadership, his name has been engraved upon the heart of the world in terms of loving kindliness that will never bring aught but good to the world. Both Lincoln and Napoleon led armies in warfare, but the objects of their leadership were as different as night is different from day. If it would give you a better understanding of the principles upon which this reading course is based, you could easily be cited to leadership of today which resembles both the brand that Napoleon employed and that which Lincoln made the foundation of his life work, but this is not essential, your own ability to look around and analyze men who take the leading parts in all lines of endeavor is sufficient to enable you to pick out the Lincoln as well as the Napoleon types. Your own judgment will help you decide which type you prefer to emulate. There can be no doubt in your mind as to the brand of leadership that is recommended in this reading course, and there should be no question in your mind as to which of the two brands described you will adopt as your brand. We make no recommendations on this subject, however, for the reason that this reading course has been prepared as a means of laying before its students the fundamental principles upon which power is developed, and not as a preachment on ethical conduct. We present both the constructive and the destructive possibilities of the principles outlined in this course, that you may become familiar with both, but we leave entirely to your own discretion the choice and application of these principles, believing that your own intelligence will guide you to make a wise selection. The Penalty of Leadership In every field of human endeavor, he that is first must perpetually live in the white light of publicity. Whether the leadership be vested in a man or in a manufactured product, emulation and envy are ever at work. In art, in literature, in music, in industry, the reward and the punishment are always the same. The reward is widespread recognition, the punishment's fierce denial and detraction. When a man's work becomes a standard for the whole world, it also becomes a target for the shafts of the envious few. If his work be merely mediocre, he will be left severely alone, if he achieve a masterpiece, it will set a million tongues a-wagging. Jealousy does not protrude its forked tongue at the artist who produces a commonplace painting. With the compliments of the Cadillac Motor Car Company. Whatsoever you write, or paint, or play, or sing, or build, no one will strive to surpass or slander you, unless your work be stamped with the seal of a genius. Long, long after a great work or a good work has been done, those who are disappointed or envious continue to cry out that it cannot be done. Mean voices were raised against the author of the law of success before the ink was dry on the first textbooks. Poison pens were released against both the author and the philosophy the moment the first edition of the course was printed. Spiteful little voices in the domain of art were raised against our own whistler as a mountebank, long after the big world acclaimed him its greatest artistic genius. Multitudes flocked to Bayreuth to worship at the musical shrine of Wagner, while the little group of those whom he had dethroned and displaced argued angrily that he was no musician at all. 
the little world continued to protest that Fulton could never build a steamboat, while the big world flocked to the river banks to see his boat steam by. Small, narrow voices cried out that Henry Ford would not last another year, but above and beyond the din of their childish prattle Ford went silently about his business and made himself the richest and most powerful man on earth. The leader is assailed because he is a leader, and the effort to equal him is merely added proof of his leadership. Failing to equal or to excel, the follower seeks to depreciate and to destroy, but only confirms the superiority of that which he strives to supplant. There is nothing new in this. It is as old as the world and as old as the human passions, envy, fear, greed, ambition and the desire to surpass. And it all avails nothing. If the leader truly leads, he remains the leader. Master poet, master painter, master workman. Each in his turn is assailed, and each holds his laurels through the ages. That which is good or great makes itself known, no matter how loud the clamor of denial. A real leader cannot be slandered or damaged by lies of the envious, because all such attempts serve only to turn the spotlight on his ability, and real ability always finds a generous following. Attempts to destroy real leadership is love's labor lost, because that which deserves to live, lives. We come back, now, to the discussion of the third step of the procedure that you must follow in developing initiative and leadership. This third step takes us back for a review of the principle of organized effort, as described in the preceding lessons. Of this course. You have already learned that no man can. Accomplish enduring results of a far-reaching nature without the aid and cooperation of others. You have already learned that when two or more persons ally themselves in any undertaking, in a spirit of harmony and understanding, each person in the alliance thereby multiplies his own powers of achievement. Nowhere is this principle more evidence than it is in an industry or business in which there is perfect teamwork be. Tween the employer and the employees. Wherever you find this teamwork you find prosperity and goodwill on both sides. Cooperation is said to be the most important word in the English language. It plays an important part in the affairs of the home, in the relationship of man and wife, parents and children. It plays an important part in the affairs of state. So important is this principle of cooperation that no leader can become powerful or last long who does not understand and apply it in his leadership. Lack of cooperation has destroyed more business enterprises than have all other causes combined. In my 25 years of active business experience and observation I have witnessed the destruction of all manner of business enterprises because of dissension and lack of application of this principle of cooperation. In the practice of law I have observed the destruction of homes and divorce cases without end as a result of the lack of cooperation between man and wife. In the study of the histories of nations it becomes alarmingly obvious that lack of cooperative effort has been a curse to the human race all back down the ages. Turn back the pages of these histories and study them and you will learn a lesson in cooperation, that will impress itself indelibly upon your mind. You are paying, and your children and your children's children will continue to pay, for the cost of the most expensive and destructive war the world has ever known, because nations have not yet learned that a part of the world cannot suffer without damage and suffering to the whole world. Service, sacrifice and self-control are three words which must be well understood by the person who succeeds in doing something that is of help to the world. This same rule applies, with telling effect, in the conduct of modern business and industry. When an industry becomes disorganized and torn asunder by strikes and other forms of disagreement, both the employers and employees suffer irreparable loss. But, the damage does not stop here. This loss becomes a burden to the public and takes on the form of higher prices and scarcity of the necessities of life. The people of the United States who rent their homes are feeling the burden, at this very moment, 
of lack of cooperation between contractors and builders and the workers. So uncertain has the relationship between the contractors and their employees become that the contractors will not undertake a building without adding to the cost an arbitrary sum sufficient to protect them in the event of labor troubles. This additional cost increases rents and places unnecessary burdens upon the backs of millions of people. In this instance the lack of cooperation between a few men places heavy and almost unbearable burdens upon millions of people. The same evil exists in the operation of our railroads. Lack of harmony and cooperation between the railroad management and the workers has made it necessary for the railroads to increase their freight and passenger rates, and this, in turn, has increased the cost of life's necessities to almost unbearable proportions. Here, again, lack of cooperation between a few leads to hardship for millions of people. These facts are cited without effort or desire to place the responsibility for this lack of cooperation, since the object of this reading course is to help its students get at facts. It may be truthfully stated that the high cost of living that everywhere manifests itself today has grown out of lack of application of the principle of cooperative leadership. Those who wish to decry present systems of government and industrial management may do so, but in the final analysis it becomes obvious to all except those who are not seeking the truth that the evils of government and of industry have grown out of lack of cooperation. Nor can it be truthfully said that all the evils of the world are confined to the affairs of state and industry. Take a look at the churches and you will observe the damaging effects of lack of cooperation. No particular church is cited, but analyze any church or group of churches where lack of coordination of effort prevails and you will see evidence of disintegration that limits the service those churches could render. For example, take the average town or small city where rivalry has sprung up between the churches and notice what has happened, especially those towns in which the number of churches is far out of proportion to the population. Through harmonized effort and through cooperation, the churches of the world could wield sufficient influence to render war an impossibility. Through this same principle of cooperative effort the churches and the leaders of business and industry could eliminate rascality and sharp practices, and all this could be brought about speedily. These possibilities are not mentioned in the spirit of criticism, but only as a means of illustrating the power of cooperation, and to emphasize my belief in the potential power of the churches of the world. So, there will be no possibility of misinterpretation of my meaning in the reference that I have here made to the churches I will repeat that which I have so often said in person, namely, that had it not been for the influence of the churches no man would be safe in walking down the street. Men would be at each other's throat like wolves and civilization would still be in the prehistoric age. My complaint is not against the work that the churches have done, but the work that they could have done through leadership that was based upon the principle of coordinated, cooperative effort which would have carried civilization at least a thousand years ahead of where it is today. It is not yet too late for such leadership. That you may more fully grasp the fundamental principle of cooperative effort you are urged to go to the public library and read The Science of Power, by Benjamin Kidd. Out of scores of volumes by some of the soundest thinkers of the world that I have read during the past 15 years, no single volume has given me such a full understanding of the possibilities of cooperative effort as has this book. In recommending that you read this book it is not my purpose to endorse the book in its entirety, for it offers some theories with which I am not in accord. If you read it, do so with an open mind and take from it only that which you feel you can use to advantage in achieving the object of your definite chief aim. The book will stimulate thought, which is the greatest service that any book can render. As a matter of fact the chief object of this reading course on the law of success is to stimulate deliberate thought, particularly that brand of thought that is free from bias and prejudice and is seeking truth no matter where or how or when it may be found. During the World War I was fortunate enough to listen to a great soldier's analysis of how to be a leader. This analysis was given to the student officers of the second training camp at Fort Sheridan, by Major C. A. Bach, a quiet, 
unassuming army officer acting as an instructor. I have preserved a copy of this address because I believe it to be one of the finest lessons on leadership ever recorded. The wisdom of major box address is so vital to the businessman aspiring to leadership, or to the section boss, or to the stenographer, or to the foreman of the shop, or to the president of the works, that I have preserved it as a part of this reading course. It is my earnest hope that through the agency of this course this remarkable dissertation on leadership will find its way into the hands of every employer and every worker and every ambitious person who aspires to leadership in any walk of life. The principles upon which the address is based are as applicable to leadership in business and industry and finance as they are in the successful conduct of warfare. Major Bach spoke as follows. In a short time each of you men will control the lives of a certain number of other men. You will have in your charge loyal but untrained citizens, who look to you for instruction and guidance. Your word will be their law. Your most casual remark will be remembered. Your mannerisms will be aped. Your clothing, your carriage, your vocabulary, your manner of command will be imitated. When you join your organization you will find. They're a willing body of men who ask from you nothing more than the qualities that will command their respect, their loyalty and their obedience. They are perfectly ready and eager to follow you so long as you can convince them that you have these qualities. When the time comes that they are satisfied you do not possess them you might as well kiss yourself goodbye. Your usefulness in that organization is at an end. How remarkably true this is in all manner of leadership. From the standpoint of society, the world may be divided into leaders and followers. The professions have their leaders, the financial world has its leaders. In all this leadership it is difficult, if not impossible, to separate from the element of pure leadership that selfish element of personal gain or advantage to the individual without which any leadership would lose its value. It is in military service only, where men freely sacrifice their lives for a faith, where men are willing to suffer and die for the right or the prevention of a wrong, that we can hope to realize leadership in its most exalted and disinterested sense. Therefore, when I say leadership, I mean military leadership. In a few days the great mass of you men will receive commissions as officers. These commissions will not make you leaders, they will merely make you officers. They will place you in a position where you can become leaders if you possess the proper attributes. But you must make good, not so much with the men over you as with the men under you. Make excuses for the shortcomings of others, if you wish, but hold yourself to a strict accountability if you would attain leadership in any undertaking. Men must and will follow into battle officers who are not leaders, but the driving power behind these men is not enthusiasm but discipline. They go with doubt and trembling that prompts the unspoken question, what will he do next? Such men obey the letter of their orders but no more. Of devotion to their commander, of exalted enthusiasm which scorns personal risk, of self-sacrifice to ensure his personal safety, they know nothing. Their legs carry them forward because their brain and their training tell them they must go. Their spirit does not go with them. Great results are not achieved by cold, passive, unresponsive soldiers. They don't go very far and they stop as soon as they can. Leadership not only demands but receives the willing, unhesitating, unfaltering obedience and loyalty of other men, and a devotion that will cause them, when the time comes, to follow their uncrowned king to hell and back again, if necessary. You will ask yourselves, of just what, then, does leadership consist? What must I do to become a leader? What are the attributes of leadership, and how can I cultivate them? Leadership is a composite of a number of qualities. Just as success is a composite of the 15 factors out of which this reading course was built, among the most important I would list self-confidence, moral ascendancy, self-sacrifice, paternalism, fairness, initiative, decision, dignity, courage. Self-confidence results, first, from exact knowledge, second, the ability to impart that knowledge. 
and third, the feeling of superiority over others that naturally follows. All these give the officer poise. To lead, you must know. You may bluff all of your men some of the time, but you can't do it all the time. Men will not have confidence in an officer unless he knows his business, and he must know it from the ground up. The officer should know more about paperwork than his first sergeant and company clerk put together, he should know more about messing than his mess sergeant, more about diseases of the horse than his troop farrier. He should be at least as good a shot as any man in his company. If the officer does not know, and demonstrates the fact that he does not know, it is entirely human for the soldier to say to himself, to hell with him. He doesn't know as much about this as I do, and calmly disregard the instructions received. There is no substitute for accurate knowledge. Become so well informed that men will hunt you up to ask questions, that your brother officers will say to one another, ask Smith, he knows. And not only should each officer know thoroughly the duties of his own grade, but he should study those of the two grades next above him. A twofold benefit attaches to this. He prepares himself for duties which may fall to his lot any time during battle. He further gains a broader viewpoint which enables him to appreciate the necessity for the issuance of orders and join more intelligently in their execution. Not only must the officer know but he must be able to put what he knows into grammatical, interesting, forceful English. He must learn to stand on his feet and speak without embarrassment. I am told that in British training camps student officers are required to deliver 10-minute talks on any subject they choose. That is excellent practice. For to speak clearly one must think clearly, and clear, logical thinking expresses itself in definite, positive orders. While self-confidence is the result of knowing more than your men, moral ascendancy over them is based upon your belief that you are the better man. To gain and maintain this ascendancy you must have self-control, physical vitality and endurance and moral force. You must have yourself so well in hand that, even though in battle you be scared stiff, you will never show fear. For if by so much as a hurried movement or a trembling of the hands, or a change of expression, or a hasty order hastily revoked, you indicate your mental condition it will be reflected in your men in a far greater degree. In garrison or camp many instances will arise to try your temper and wreck the sweetness of your disposition. If at such times you fly off the handle you have no business to be in charge of men. For men in anger say and do things that they almost invariably regret afterward. An officer should never apologize to his men, also an officer should never be guilty of an act for which his sense of justice tells him he should apologize. Another element in gaining moral ascendancy lies in the possession of enough physical vitality and endurance to withstand the hardships to which you and your men are subjected, and a dauntless spirit that enables you not only to accept them cheerfully but to minimize their magnitude. Make light of your troubles, belittle your trials and you will help vitally to build up within your organization an esprit whose value in time of stress cannot be measured. Moral force is the third element in gaining moral ascendancy. To exert moral force you must live clean, you must have sufficient brain power to see the right and the will to do right. Be an example to your men. An officer can be a power for good or a power for evil. Don't preach to them, that will be worse than useless. Live the kind of life you would have them lead, and you will be surprised to see the number that will imitate you. A loudmouthed, profane captain who is careless of his personal appearance will have a loudmouthed, profane, dirty company. Remember what I tell you. Your company will be the reflection of yourself. If you have a rotten company it will be because you are a rotten captain. Self-sacrifice is essential to leadership. You will give, give, all the time. You will give of yourself physically, for the longest hours, the hardest work and the greatest responsibility are the lot of the captain. He is the first man up in the morning and the last man in at night. He works while others sleep. You will give of yourself mentally, in sympathy and appreciation for the troubles of men in your charge. 
This one's mother has died, and that one has lost all his savings in a bank failure. They may desire help, but more than anything else they desire sympathy. Don't make the mistake of turning such men. Down with the statement that you have troubles of your own, for every time you do that you knock a stone out oh if the foundation of your house. Your men are your foundation, and your house of leadership will tumble about your ears unless it rests securely upon them. Finally, you will give of your own slender financial resources. You will frequently spend your own money to conserve the health and well-being of your men or to assist them when in trouble. Generally you get your money back. Very frequently you must charge it off to profit and loss. Even so, it is worth the cost. When I say that paternalism is essential to leadership I use the term in its better sense. I do not now refer to that form of paternalism which robs men of initiative, self-reliance and self-respect. I refer to the paternalism that manifests itself in a watchful care for the comfort and welfare of those in your charge. Soldiers are much like children. You must see that they have shelter, food and clothing, the best that your utmost efforts can provide. You must see that they have food to eat before you think of your own, that they have each as good a bed as can be provided before you consider where you will sleep. You must be far more solicitous of their comfort than of your own. You must look after their health. You must conserve their strength by not demanding needless exertion or useless labor. And by doing all these things you are breathing life into what would be otherwise a mere machine. You are creating a soul in your organization that will make the mass respond to you as though it were one man. And that is esprit. No accurate thinker will judge another person by that which the other person's enemies say about him. And when your organization has this esprit you will wake up some morning and discover that the tables have been turned, that instead of your constantly looking out for them they have, without even a hint from you, taken up the task of looking out for you. You will find that a detail is always there to see that your tent, if you have one, is promptly pitched, that the most and the cleanest bedding is brought to your tent, that from some mysterious source two eggs have been added to your supper when no one else has any, that an extra man is helping your men give your horse a super grooming, that your wishes are anticipated, that every man is Johnny on the spot. And then you have arrived. You cannot treat all men alike. A punishment that would be dismissed by one man with a shrug of the shoulders is mental anguish for another. A company commander who, for a given offense, has a standard punishment that applies to all is either too indolent or too stupid to study the personality of his men. In his case justice is certainly blind. Study your men as carefully as a surgeon studies a difficult case. And when you are sure of your diagnosis apply the remedy. And remember that you apply the remedy to effect a cure, not merely to see the victim squirm. It may be necessary to cut deep, but when you are satisfied as to your diagnosis don't be diverted from your purpose by any false sympathy for the patient. Hand in hand with fairness in awarding punishment walks fairness in giving credit. Everybody hates a human hog. When one of your men has accomplished an especially creditable piece of work. See that he gets the proper reward. Turn heaven and earth upside down to get it for him. Don't try to take it away from him and hog it for yourself. You may do this and get away with it but you have lost the respect and loyalty of your men. Sooner or later your brother officers will hear of it and shun you like a leper. In war there is glory enough for all. Give the man under you his due. The man who always takes and never gives is not a leader. He is a parasite. There is another kind of fairness, that which will prevent an officer from abusing the privileges of his rank. When you exact respect from soldiers be sure you treat them with equal respect. Build up their manhood and self-respect. Don't try to pull it down. For an officer to be overbearing and insulting in the treatment of enlisted men is the act of a coward. He ties the man to a tree with the ropes of discipline and then strikes him in the face knowing full well that the man cannot strike back. Consideration, courtesy and respect from officers toward enlisted men are not incompatible with discipline. They are parts of our discipline. 
Without initiative and decision no man can expect to lead. In maneuvers you will frequently see, when an emergency arises, certain men calmly give instant orders which later, on analysis, prove to be, if not exactly the right thing, very nearly the right thing to have done. You will see other men in emergency become badly rattled, their brains refuse to work, or they give a hasty order, revoke it, give another revoke that, in short, show every indication of being in a blue funk. Regarding the first man you may say, that man is a genius. He hasn't had time to reason this thing out. He acts intuitively. Forget it. Genius is merely the capacity for taking infinite pains. The man who is ready is the man who has prepared himself. He has studied beforehand the possible situations that might arise, he has made tentative plans covering such situations. When he is confronted by the emergency he is ready to meet it. He must have sufficient mental alertness to appreciate the problem that confronts him and the power of quick reasoning to determine what changes are necessary in his already formulated plan. He must also have the decision to order the execution and stick to his orders. Any reasonable order in an emergency is better than no order. The situation is there. Meet it. It is better to do something and do the wrong thing than to hesitate, hunt around for the right thing to do and wind up by doing nothing at all. And, having decided on a line of action, stick to it. Don't vacillate. Men have no confidence in an officer who doesn't know his own mind. Occasionally you will be called upon to meet a situation which no reasonable human being could anticipate. If you have prepared yourself to meet other emergencies which you could anticipate, the mental training you have thereby gained will enable you to act promptly and with calmness. You must frequently act without orders from higher authority. Time will not permit you to wait for them. Here again enters the importance of studying the work of officers above you. If you have a comprehensive grasp of the entire situation and can form an idea of the general plan of your superiors, that and your previous emergency training will enable you to determine that the responsibility is yours and to issue the necessary orders without delay. The element of personal dignity is important in military leadership. Be the friend of your men, but do not become their intimate. Your men should stand in awe of you, not fear. If your men presume to become familiar it is your fault, and not theirs. Your actions have encouraged them to do so. And, above all things, don't cheapen yourself by courting their friendship or currying their favor. They will despise, you for it. If you are worthy of their loyalty and respect and devotion they will surely give all these without asking. If you are not, nothing that you can do will win them. It is exceedingly difficult for an officer to be dignified while wearing a dirty, spotted uniform and a three-day stubble of whiskers on his face. Such a man lacks self-respect, and self-respect is an essential of dignity. There may be occasions when your work entails dirty clothes and an unshaved face. Your men all look that way. At such times there is ample reason for your appearance. In fact, it would be a mistake to look too clean, they would think that you were, not doing your share. But as soon as this unusual occasion has passed set an example for personal neatness. And then I would mention courage. Moral courage you need as well as mental courage, that kind of moral courage which enables you to adhere without faltering to a determined course of action, which you're judgment has indicated is the one best suited to secure the desired results. You will find many times, especially in action, that, after having issued your orders to do a certain thing, you will be beset by misgivings and doubts, you will see, or think you see, other and better means for accomplishing the object sought. You will be strongly tempted to change your orders. Don't do it until it is clearly manifested that your first orders were radically wrong. For, if you do, you will be again worried by doubts as to the efficacy of your second orders. Every time you change your orders without obvious reason you weaken your authority and impair the confidence of your men. Have the moral courage to stand by your order and see it through. 
moral courage further demands that you assume the responsibility for your own acts. If your subordinates have loyally carried out your orders and the movement you directed is a failure the failure is yours, not theirs. Yours would have been the honor had it been successful. Take the blame if it results in disaster. Don't try to shift it to a subordinate and make him the goat. That is a cowardly act. Furthermore, you will need moral courage to determine the fate of those under you. You will frequently be called upon for recommendations for promotion or demotion of officers and non-commissioned officers in your immediate command. 